Please be seated. I don't remember when you stand, stood. <laughs> um, so previously, Jesus had been eating with like a high-ranking Pharisee, a religious leader, and he starts, um, he starts pushing on them and saying like, essentially, look, just because you're some high-ranking religious elite doesn't mean that as God is actively now doing what he's promised he would do, the Messiah, the chosen one has come, it doesn't mean that you will have a place of honor at the table. Uh, which would have been, shall we say, offensive. And then he goes on to say that, that like, when you throw a banquet, invite the wrong sorts of people, the people that would generally be um, excluded from the kingdom of God, the, the sinners and the broken people and all of that. Uh, and he couched it in language of throwing a banquet because one of the ways to talk about this Messiah coming is a banquet feast. And when God finally finishes what he's going to do, it's like a really big party. So that's multiple layers of metaphor here, which is why it can be quite confusing. Now, naturally, in the wake of this, people are suddenly very interested. Or not suddenly, but they're even more interested in what this teacher from Nazareth is saying. Because he's putting like the religious elite in their place... And it seems like, hey, for the regular old people like me, and the sinners like me, and the broken people like me, like maybe we actually, maybe we can hitch our wagons to this guy. And so I think that's why this particular reading, this gospel reading, starts with, now a large crowd was following him. Because that's a pretty attractive thing to say. And then Jesus appears to turn around and stick him with a warning that sounds very odd. He says, all right, fine, look, you want to come follow me? Hate your family. In fact, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your family. I mean, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of un-Jesus-y, if that's a word. That seems a little odd. Like, I'm thinking in my own life, like, well, I mean... I'm not on speaking terms with, and I hate my sister. Um, so maybe I'm closer. And for what it's worth, unless I've been lied to my whole life, I don't have a sister. So don't start, <laughs> don't start any weird rumors here. Um, it's like you, you kind of you know, do that little thought experiment. It's like, I don't think that's what Jesus means. Uh, and as it turns out, you know, ancient Near, uh, Near Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture, um, hyperbole and exaggeration is often used to make a point, um, like a comparison point. So Jesus isn't saying, like, quite literally, go and wish that your father dies. It's more of like a relative term. Like, how do you uh, act toward your parents versus how do you act toward Jesus and the father? And your, your allegiance, so to speak, should be to Jesus so deep and profound that comparatively, it's as though you hate your family or something like that. That's, the, that's what he's drawing out. Now, by his teaching here, it seems like a whole bunch of people are suddenly interested in actually being Jesus' disciples. And that's a lot more formal. 
Um, that means that they are actually saying, we want to follow you as our teacher or as our rabbi, which does not mean, okay, we're going to have some, you know, be baptized or whatever, have some sort of allegiance to Jesus, and then we're going to go home and live our lives as followers of Jesus. In this moment, that's not how that works. They mean following Jesus to Jerusalem. And the expectation, because Jesus seems to be this chosen Messiah, this Christ, that they're going to go, and when he, like, clears out the temple and cleanses it when he kicks the Roman authorities out, when he reestablishes the kingdom of Israel, they want to be there on the inside. Now, Jesus had more than just the 12 disciples that we know about. Um, if you kind of read on and then into Acts, you'll find out that he had you know, more so in the hundreds rather than in the dozens. Um, but Jesus seems to be issuing a warning in this moment. First off, your allegiance has to be absolutely unshakable. And then he says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Now that's weird because Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. Um, in his mind, he, he kind of knows where this is going. Um, but that's a really scary analogy because... I mean, Roman authority is, uh, is ubiquitous. It's, it's all over the place at this point. Um, I think it's fair to say that, that a lot of the people would have seen that horrible sight of Roman officials coming and grabbing some of their fellow villagers, fellow countrymen who have challenged Roman interests and therefore have been dragged off to be crucified publicly. He, he's, he's suddenly saying like, hey, the road that I'm on is not going to be a pleasant one. And then he, again, takes a really hard turn and starts drawing like these, these strange metaphors about like building a guard tower and going to war. And at some point, you got to step back and ask like, okay, hold on. Are we talking about like being your disciple, like doing daily devotions and saying our prayers? Or Jesus, what are we talking about here? And I think a better explanation from how we typically think about this passage is that Jesus is again mixing metaphors and hinting at the, the destruction to come. Jesus has already prophetically declared that Jerusalem is going to turn against the way God wants them to be and it's going to result in their, its utter destruction. And he was absolutely right. It happens a generation later. And so with that in mind, and with the warnings that Jesus keeps giving his people saying, if you will not be Israel as God intends you to be, and instead go down this sort of violent nationalistic revolt, like you define the kingdom of God how you think it should be, uh, it's going to lead to your utter destruction kind of pull that back into what Jesus just said, where he's talking about guard towers and going to war, maybe it makes a little more sense. Jesus' warning, in other words, to all of these people who want to follow him is that you need to give up the ways that you think God's kingdom should be 
and instead trust Jesus for how he is defining God's kingdom. And that's a very important difference and distinction. Uh, we tend to like to think about how you know, church or how God's kingdom should be. Uh, I think I said a couple of uh, weeks earlier, like a lot of people want to serve God, but we want to serve him as an advisory instead of actually, you know, doing what he wants. And it's very easy for us to import ideas about how God's kingdom should be, how our values as Christians should be, um, that aren't really defined by God's word, but are kind of mixed with cultural ideas. It's, it's a common thing. The reason, however, that I'm being sort of dismissive and trying to get through this is that I'm much more interested in that whole business about being salt. So Jesus gave this warning to all these people. He's like, all right, you want to follow me? Great. I'm not on the road that you think I'm on. And you need to be prepared for that. It's just like when the mother of two of Jesus' disciples come up to him and, and she says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can my sons be on your right and your left? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, do you? Because a little bit, when he is raised up, so to speak, there is somebody on his right and his left, it's just they're dying with him. Um, and then Jesus makes a turn, because on the one hand, he gives this warning, like, you've got to abandon all ideas about what you think God's kingdom is like, but then at the same time, he encourages them, says, but you are the salt of the earth. Even if they aren't like his disciples following him, him around. Um, now, what does that mean? Because I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to like, go to Trader Joe's and pour their kosher salt on the ground. That's a good way to like, make the ground not terribly fertile. Not that our soil is very fertile here anyway. Um, so I did some digging. And by digging, I mean I fell into a massive rabbit hole. Uh, salt, when we think about it, we think of like sodium chloride, maybe a little iodine. Salt for them um, is not at all like that. Salt will have some sodium chloride in it. It will also have potassium, magne magnesium, and a couple of other chemical compounds you probably haven't heard of. And as it turns out, salt was in fact used as a fertilizer. And it, it I mean, the ancient peoples were just brilliant um, they found that they could use it to loosen soil. They could use it to render the topsoil um, very inhospitable to weeds, but their crops, which they would plant much deeper, actually wouldn't be affected. The compounds that, that were in their salt, um, again, the potassium, magnesium, and some other stuff, uh, actually, the, turns out, are pretty good for plants. And even in the modern day, there are certain crops that need a little bit of salt. Um, it can be used to help um, the, the, the soil with, with irrigation. Like, in other words, there's all kinds of things that you can do with it. But it makes the ground richer. However... 
given enough time and exposure to like moisture in the air and, and some other stuff, um, those compounds can melt away. And then you're stuck with something that's useless. Jesus said it's not even worth throwing on the manure pile, Well, which would make you wonder, why would salt be thrown on the manure pile? Well, as you probably know, manure is also great fertilizer, but it can rot. And ancient Hebrews, um, there's one culture I'm just forgetting, they found this in the Far East as well, realized that you can actually use salt to prevent manure from rotting. And then you can use it later. But if the salt loses its saltiness, you, I mean, it's not even worth putting on the manure because it's just not going to do anything. And so it's left behind. Fascinating stuff. And when, when Jesus is talking about discipleship in that way, um, in the first part, uh, the whole like, hate your family, count the cost, and, and carry your cross, um, that's really kind of a warning. And it's initially or mostly a warning for the people in that moment with a suggestion to us 2,000 years later that following Jesus really, really does mean your allegiance is first to Jesus. Now, we are really fortunate that in kind of our modern American life, there isn't a lot that will pull our allegiance or at least attempt to pull our allegiance away from Jesus. At least nothing striking and stark. There's no, uh, I mean, our government is not and cannot demand that we pay homage to some other God, for example. Many other Christians alive today and alive throughout the centuries are not so fortunate. So we are not necessarily dealing with those issues, those big bullying issues of faith. As disciples, however, in modern America, uh, discipleship does, however, feel a lot more like plants growing in soil. It's slower. It takes a little more time. It takes a little thought. In fact, Jesus uses this metaphor elsewhere. As seeds sprout, they have certain needs. If there are too many rocks. You won't they won't have what they need. If there are thorns, it'll choke them out. If there's good soil, it will go great. If the soil's too hard and the seeds can't penetrate, then they're, not gonna, they're just going to get consumed. And yet he says you are the salt of the earth. So what does it mean to be salt, to be that fertilizer of the ground, for those growing around you in a culture that is not really going to make <clears throat> those big bullying demands of allegiance, but rather will needle you to death with everything else. Um, <clears throat> sometimes it's about priorities, I think. 
Sorry about that. Sometimes it's about priorities. Um, we do live in a culture that will strongly suggest that our careers are paramount at the cost of everything else. And so maybe sometimes being salt is to say, okay, my career, my job, it's just a job. I also have my family. I have my church community. I have the, these ministry opportunities where I can take some time away and serve those who desperately need the help. That, that's pretty, that, that's salty to use kind of a, I don't know, that feels very Sunday school-ish, but that's, that's pretty salty in a good way behavior. I'm not going to be captive to that. Uh, sometimes this has to do with entertainment. That's a little tricky for me. I like certain shows that it probably always, shouldn't always. Um, with the, the, the things we consume, um, and by that I mean like news, entertainment, music, uh, social media. If we are uh, being the salt of the earth, are we leaving Facebook a better place, less contentious, a little more peaceful place than when we logged on initially? Um, what about in our communities? What does it mean to be salty? I mean, we live in Albuquerque and there's huge needs here. Uh, that's why we have certain ministries like God Cares About You where, where we actually have a place in the heart of where some of the biggest need is. And everybody is invited to go and be salt to some earth that is very rocky and hard and frankly inhospitable to flourishing life. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. And as Jesus is telling these people, who's just said like, okay, hold on, because realize like, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Um, you need to be prepared for that. At the same time, he is saying, however, if you hit your wagon to me, you have a responsibility to encourage the flourishing of life and the communities everywhere you go and everybody that you touch. That's what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus. That just like when you plant a seed into ground that is well fertilized and it just comes to life, um, how are you encouraging that with the people you encounter? is I think what Jesus is getting at. That's a very weighty responsibility, but it is also wildly encouraging because uh, while Jesus does say, hey, if you lose your, that saltiness, like that's not terribly useful, but his, but his premise is that you already are the salt of the earth. And I love that imagery, and I'll, I'll 
wrap up here. I, I love that imagery of, of earth and, and soil and plant life and growth. I'm, uh, initially, my dad was a florist. My grandfather was a florist. My family has long loved things that grow and are cultivated. Uh, because if you take a step back and look at the story of Jesus, this is divinity wrapped in flesh hitting dust. This is flesh on the dust. Go, and Jesus is going around to these communities, even as he knows he's got just a few weeks or months to live, bringing life to everything that he touches. That eventually he will go to his death. He will bleed out onto the dust of the ground. And as other New Testament writers and Christians really throughout the millennia have, have pointed out, like that death, and that blood going into the soil like that creates a kind of fertilizer that that seed dies. And then it grows into something much bigger. That in that moment of death, so do we die. Our sinfulness dies, the, our, our lack of saltiness, our, our inability to be Jesus' disciples, that all just dies with him. And then when Jesus walks out of that tomb three days later, something, something new grows. And it spreads to the nations of the earth. And 2,000 years later, here we are. Be the salt of the earth be that fertilizing presence in your communities and in your relationships. Resist that, that maybe needling, biting temptation that our culture throws at us to hitch our allegiance to anything else. Because the world desperately needs us. Amen. As you are able, I invite you to rise.